This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. Lynn Rogers wanted to be a baseball player at Cal State Fullerton. Funny thing happened. He became one of the best coaches in university history. Not in baseball, but in women's gymnastics. That alone would make a good story. But Lynn started tinkering around the family kitchen and made a company. Coach's Oats was born in 1992, and Lynn had no idea what was about to happen. You know, we had people show up at 9 o'clock in the morning and leave at 5, and we had the, the family room, a porch off the office, one of our bedrooms. That was all Coach's Oats. And, uh, in fact, when we actually moved into an office, one of my sons, the truck came and took the, the desks and all the office furniture that we had, and he said, well, when are they coming back for the rest of the stuff? What, what do you mean? He goes, well, aren't we going to go live with the... Like, he thought you lived with Coach's Oats. So he thought we were going to be moving out of the house and go go live wherever the office was going to be. It just made sense to him, right? Because he was used to seeing everybody. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from authors, farmers, and photo editor, Jim Colton. There used to be a day when, you know... Editors would be able to whack that crap down and and put out what's worth seeing, but now it's like a fire hose. Um, and now that everybody has an iPhone and thinks they're a professional photographer, they're posting everything up without any vetting, you know, without any information, without any you know knowledge of what they're doing other than then you know posting their their favorite breakfast that they just shot or whatever. Go to justagoodconversation.com for all our archives. Let's take a quick break from my sponsor before diving into my conversation with Lynn Rogers. I am very fortunate. I have the great coach, Lynn Rogers, sitting here, a guest on the podcast. How are you, sir? Nervous. (laughs) Like a a meet against uh, UCLA? (laughs) Oh, I I tell you, I I do. I have anxiety sitting here right now. So I've got a microphone in my face. and There's no pommel horse here, no uneven bars. This is just a conversation. Two guys talking about, you know, your love. Well, you said the word great, so that makes me nervous right there. So <laughs> You're already sweating. Call my wife. I did a, a ton of research on you, and it's fascinating. Your career and everything you're doing, it's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful research and d- deep dive. Can you tell me this? Because this I could not find. I found little bits and pieces. But where did you grow up? Are you a local kid? I am not. You're I was not born in West Virginia. That's nowhere near Fullerton. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's coal mine country. Uh, born in West Virginia, uh, uh, grew up there as a young boy, and then moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Even a town deep- called Bethel Park, <laughs> and came out here in, in 1968 to play baseball. Actually, at Cal State Fullerton. So, I mean, was your idea though from Pennsylvania, like I'm coming out west to play ball or to go to school? Mostly it was to dress like the Beach Boys and learn how to surf. <laughs> the, the, Beach Boys, the Beach Boys were huge, you know, in 1967, 68, and, and California was where I wanted to be. How dreamy was that? I mean, that, I mean, people don't realize the Beach Boys' influence on the country was... Kind of clothes we wore, songs that we liked. Right. Yeah, for sure. Where we moved. Um, I, I drove out here on, on uh, Route 66, because that was a TV show that was popular back in the day, too. And I didn't have a Corvette like Todd and Buzz, but uh, moved to Fullerton, and I was afraid to drive on the freeways. 
because Pittsburgh, we didn't have any freeways. No, nothing like that, and right? And to get to the beach, you took Commonwealth, the Beach Boulevard, south on Beach Boulevard, and it dumped you out in Huntington Beach. Right there. And that became my beach, and that's now where I live. Wow. So, I mean, was your was your focus on Cal State Fullerton, or was it any school in... My parents lived in Fullerton. They, they actually moved out here a year before I did. And um, in, in, I think I have the numbers right. I believe a semester around that time was like $60 a semester or something like that. It was just a crazy number. Oh, my gosh. I think, you, I think yeah, it was under $100. Right. At least that's my, my memory. And um, my, we had four boys in the family. And so that was where I was going to start to go to college. Okay. And my, and I ended up staying there. Wow. I mean, Fullerton was, you know, what, 10, 11 years old? It was a new school at the time, right? It had just become Cal State Fullerton. From, right. Or maybe it was even Cal State University at Fullerton, I think, at the time. Because it was Orange State originally. Yeah, it was Orange State right before that. I think there were five buildings on campus. We had the uh, <laughs> library, the gym. We had the music building and the science building. That's a that's just yeah. a, nothing of the landscape that it is today. Oh, no. it, you don't. It's not even. It's it's unrecognizable. When was the last time you were on campus? Mm, a couple of years ago. Does it surprise you the growth and the change and well, even I'd been now? On, and I'd been there like a year before that, right. a couple of years for that. So I've sort of watched it evolve, but but no, it's just it, it's not the same university. No, yeah, it's definitely not that five building place you you no. grew up on. So were you a baseball fanatic? Did you love baseball? I loved a lot of things growing up. I, I wasn't that guy that was just focused on one thing. And uh, sometimes I look back and I think, you know, I I wish maybe I had done that more. Okay. Because once I turned about uh, maybe 19, 20 years old, um, I met Dick Wolf, the men's gymnastics coach, and his influence changed my world and he was singularly focused and I had not been I, I loved baseball but I also loved cars I loved you know uh, hanging out with my friends I loved surfing I, I, I like doing a lot of things um, damn those beach boys <laughs> <laughs> and and so yeah I, I could have been a better baseball player I could have been a better surfer I could have been a better a lot of things and um, yeah but then that changed how was that, though, going out for baseball and, and meeting Augie? Actually, uh, to show you, I, I, I played there in 1968 for one year. Okay. And Augie wasn't yeah, there yet. Yeah, not Fulton, there yet. Bill Fulton was the head coach. Great guy. Really good guy. And, um, yeah, Augie came the year after. Okay. What was it like then figuring out, okay, that baseball's not my place? Actually, was that that, hard? Uh, actually, it was done for me because <laughs> uh, at the end of our, at the end of my freshman year, I had um, a lung problem. I had, my lung collapsed, and I had to have surgery. And this is um, this, at some point in time, you're probably going to say, "Well, how'd you get in gymnastics from baseball?" Right? Right. But so my lung collapsed, and um, when I was in the hospital back in the day. The surgery I had took, you were in the hospital for 10 days and there was a long recovery. So I had to drop out of school. And one of the things the doctor recommended for me to get healthy again was to take either uh, a yoga class or maybe gymnastics to get some of my flexibility back. 
And back in 1969 or 70, whenever this was all happening, yoga was not like Lululemon pants and, and right. you know, cool people, business people, <laughs> you know, going and taking yoga. This was, you know, guys with sandals and robes and stuff like that. Very and, hippie, and, right? Yeah, very much so. And that didn't appeal to me. That's interesting that the doctor would even, like, think that that was something that would be good for you. Well, a lot of stretching. Right. Yeah, so, but but I... That's remember, very now. Yeah, but I was in the hospital a long time, and I had lost a lot of flexibility. And I was home in bed for a period of time. So I took gymnastics, and that changed my world. Where did you take it? At Cal State Fullerton. So they had just... Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, they had a beginning gymnastics class, and the thing that I liked about gymnastics that was missing in my life, not it wasn't missing in baseball. If I was smart, I'd have taken the, what, <laughs> what they were teaching in gymnastics and applied it to a sport that I already had some skill in, right? Right. Um, I wasn't going to go anywhere with my gymnastics at that that point in time. Did it, did it scare you, though? I mean, here you are. You've, you've had a collapsed lung. You've had this major surgery. And now you're moving and twisting and tumbling and all the things that you hadn't no. done a year prior? No, I, I had recovered from the surgery okay. and I, I was in pretty good shape. But what, what, what came through in the gymnastics more than anything was in gymnastics, you have to give 100% all the time. If you think about it, like backflip. Right. If you only give 75% in a backflip, you land on your head. If you only give 50% on doing a handstand, you fall on your head. I mean, you have to give 100% every time you do a skill. And in baseball, I had been able to get away with some days giving 75%, some days thinking more about my car, some days thinking more about going to the beach. And the thing that really, really impressed me about the sport of gymnastics was that um, it required so much discipline and commitment. And at that time in my life, I wanted that. That's that's pretty interesting at such a young age for you to make that, and not you know it it struck you you made sense to you at that age, totally. And I, I was fortunate on one hand. I had parents that gave me a wide lane to drive in. You know, I I wasn't pushed in any one direction or or really asked a lot to to perform at a certain level. And and but the downside of that was is I also didn't learn how good that felt when you gave 100% to something. And, uh, and when, like I said, when I met, met Coach Wolf and started to learn about the sport of gymnastics, it, it, it just changed my heart, changed my world. What are you studying at this time at Fullerton? Physical education. Okay, so you're in the wheelhouse. Yeah, PE major. Yeah, yeah PE. <laughs> so then Not a lot of homework. <laughs> uh, where do you go from there? You finish with Cal State Fullerton, you get your degree. I and did. You, are you thinking, okay... What do I do? Yeah, I don't know if you remember Coach Witchy. Coach Witchy was a tennis coach back in the day, and he was Dick Wolf's office partner. And um, anyway, so when I graduated Cal State, I was think I I was really getting involved in the gymnastics. Like, how what can I do with this? Right? Maybe I'll become a high school coach, maybe and teach gymnastics at at, at a local high school. Were you thinking already that that mm -hmm. it's gymnastics? Yeah, because yeah, I, I started the the gymnastics class. I gymnastics class I took from Coach Wolf was my probably my sophomore year. So my sophomore year, my junior year, my senior year, I was I living living, eating, breathing gymnastics. I would go to every meet, every clinic I could go to, every camp I could go to. I started teaching it at the YMCA. I knew that I wanted to chase that sport. Um, 
So when I graduated, I enrolled at UCI to get my teaching credential. And I sat in an English class or some... <laughs> some class with homework oh boy <laughs> for about an hour and I said this is not for me <laughs> I this, uh, this isn't gonna fly so I went back to the university that day I uh, went to coach Wolf's office he wasn't there coach which was I knew Ron and we got to talking and he said you know you know you ought to go get your master's and maybe you'll think about coaching in college did you need your master's at that time to coach college or is just something like I don't you know thought it was, you know, I don't, I don't know, but it sounded better to me than taking the English class where I had to do homework. So <laughs> better than homework. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, so I um, started down that road. And at the same time that I did that, I walked out to the parking lot or was walking back to the car and on the bulletin board back in the days where they had bulletin boards where you use thumbtacks and stuff. <laughs> There was a, a card, a three-by-five note card, that said they were going to start a women's gymnastics program. And now, also for people, a note card is paper. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny how, like, it's on Twitter now, or I it's thought, an email. It's and and <laughs> I, I had uh, done some private club coaching. I was still private club coaching at the time, and I had some experience, and I was naive enough to think that they might hire me. I think it's amazing they put up a three by five card to notify like that was it. Well, like somebody randomly would wander around on campus and be like, I'll take that job. Hey, it was $385 a year, a $385 budget and $500 for coaching. So they weren't going to put a big piece of paper up. <laughs> they didn't, they didn't put those monies on the, on the three by five. I don't they? remember. I hope not. I God, they wouldn't get anybody to sign. I don't remember. But so, you, so you took a swing at it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, interestingly enough, uh, Neil Stoner was the athletic director at the time, and uh, he hired, actually another person applied for the job as well, and she was a high school coach. Uh, she was coaching at Irvine High School, I believe. Okay. And um, really good person, and she ended up marrying Dick Wolf, by the way. Yeah, her name was Charlotte Schwartz at the time, and, and um, the way things worked out, she and Dick Wolf uh, ended up getting married. And she and I co-coached the first year okay. that we were there. And then she decided she wanted to stay with the high school program and, and move in that direction. And I wanted to stay with the $500 a year uh, <laughs> college direction. So that worked out to about, what, a couple of cents a day? You <laughs> oh, no. Trust me, I had other jobs. Ah, you had to. I was working at the YMCA, yeah. What was that interview process like for you? Like just uh, like that was your first big job interview. You're yeah, you're going was, for huh? it. You're sitting there and you're going. You know, uh, you're starting a program. I don't have any coaching experience. I'm uh, your guy. I had some coaching experience. I, I but coached, not at, not at but, college, but not at the college right? level. Yeah. I, I knew nothing about. And back then it was AIAW, right? You know, and then it turned into NC2A. But um, I was probably overly confident. I was probably more full of myself than I should have been. I don't know if that helped me or hurt me in the interview, but uh, Neil made some pretty good hires, and I'm really thankful that he believed in me. And, uh, yeah, it worked out. What do you think he saw? Confidence? Because you got to have it as coach. Well, I don't know if they expected that much. I think they were trying to check a box. Okay. Right? We want to put another women's sport in here, and 
we have a good men's gymnastics program, so that kind of makes sense. And um, I was a Fullerton graduate, and but he was a young guy too, and very accomplished at an early age. And I think ho- hopefully he saw in me that I I had a vision. So, what was the first couple of steps for you then to put together a program from scratch? Like, what was that like? You got to go out and get people. There's nobody in place. Well, the advantage I had, the advantage I had was I was a private club coach at a really good club, nationally known, uh, uh, very successful club, put kids on different Olympic teams. And uh, so I quickly had a well to draw from. Okay. And I pulled a couple of kids in from that program who became All-Americans. And also because of my affiliation with, it was the Kipps Gymnastics team, so my affiliation with them I also had friends that worked for SCATs and friends that worked, friends, I mean, all over the country. So I was able to bring in some pretty good kids right off the bat. Who was your regional, like, competition? Was there Stanford and UCLA, SC? Did, who had women's gymnastics you had to compete with? Yeah, you know, honestly, the regional competition wasn't wasn't that strong. The, the, the most, our serious competition was you know, across the country. Our first year, we took third in the nation. Um, actually it was our second year. First year we just competed with some of the junior colleges and, you know, the local universities. But once we got on the road, um, you know, Penn State, uh, Southwest Missouri, Clarion. Um, it's not like it is. Clarion, where's that? In Pennsylvania. Okay. When Title IX changed a lot of things. That's what, yeah, I was going to say. When, that. when Title IX came about, all the universities that had strong men's programs, football, basketball, whatever, you know, a lot of that money got shifted into the women's side of the fence. And that meant that a lot of schools like um, Kentucky and Alabama and Georgia and Florida, they all got really good really fast. Um, When I started, there were schools that were just, for whatever reason, they chose women's gymnastics as something they wanted to invest in, like a Southwest Missouri, like a Clarion State College. So... What was the process? I mean, you're, you're, you're getting everything fresh. You got to buy equipment, you know, lay the layout in the gym. What was that like? Well, (laughs) (laughs) um, the good news, the good news, because of my background with the private clubs, I had people that actually loaned us equipment. And, um, I remember that the first road trip we took, I took my, uh, coaches, the, the head coach for the, the Kipps Gymnastics team, he gave me his van, and we took our kids, you know, on, on the road trip, which was an interesting story. Wow, like, you you just loaded everybody up and went? The, the Fullerton way. So I, I, don't, I think we had six or seven young women on the team, and the meet was in Salt Lake City. That was our first big away meet. And I think we stopped and spent the night in St. George. Okay. Right, it's about halfway. I right, think. and it was in January, and um, <laughs> January. it was really cold. And we went and got one room at this hotel, and we split up the box springs and mattresses for the for the athletes. And I slept in the van, so I'd wake up about every couple hours and turn the heater on just <laughs> just to keep warm. And then we ate at the grocery store. Dick Wolf taught me that trick when he would take his teams on the road. They would shop at the grocery store, and they wouldn't go to restaurants because they didn't have the money. Uh, the point being to answer your question was our early beginnings really depended on a lot of other people helping us and giving us stuff and, and, uh, and believing in us. And were, 
were those early groups of women some of your like best like best memories because they believed in you and in this program i mean today if you said to somebody we're eating in a grocery store and you're sleeping on a box spring they would they would think you were insane some of the young people i just spoke with one of them uh, about a week or so ago uh, she was uh, on our team national championship in 1979 she started with us in 77 i believe was her first year and yeah, those kids were sewing their own leotards. Those kids were, you know, uh, buying their own lunches. Those kids, like her scholarship was probably books and tuition. And remember, Cal State Fordham books and tuition was like a couple hundred dollars, you know. Um, and those kids figured it out about commitment and how much you put in is what you get out, not what you're given. Right. And and over the years that changed, and it wasn't it wasn't near as fun as it was at the beginning. Wow, I mean, that must have been one hell of a couple of years, that run of, like, building it from scratch. Must yeah. have been just... I guess we never thought about it in that respect. It was just like, what do we need? How do we get it? Was it was it being youth, too? You being so young, that helped with the energy and keeping it going? Um, I didn't plan this, but you're, you're in my office now, right? Yeah. <laughs> This is one of my favorite books as a kid, literally. I don't know if you know this book. Yes. Uh, it's The Little Engine That Could. And that's something, I, th I think I told you, when I met Coach Wolf and I started learning about the sport of gymnastics, I knew that I wanted to give it 100%. So maybe it was because I was young. I don't know. I, I, there's people that, do, that, that feel that way and live that way when they're 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 and whatever. Um, yeah, it, um, but that's when it hit me. Man, what an experience. What, when did you start to feel comfortable as the coach? Hmm. I was talking to my wife just recently. I wasn't ever a guy that, um, that worked as hard as I did to win, I think, I worked as hard as I did sometimes not to lose, if that makes any sense. I wanted to be in the game, but I don't like losing. And I think that sometimes is more of a motivator than, than how good it would feel to win. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of who I am. I'm still that guy today. Was, I mean, you had that run. Was it 71 straight? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take your word for it. Yeah, 71 straight wins. Like, when that's happening, I mean, we're not talking like uh, basketball where you play 82 games a year. You're, you're, not, you're playing that many gymnastics meets in a year. So that streak was a very over a very long time. Yeah, eight, nine years. Yeah. Like that. What, was there pressure? Was there people starting to notice it? I mean, oh, sure. The other, like University of Utah, for example, I... Uh, Alabama, Georgia. I mean, we, we we were able to compete because of how well our kids were doing, and we got invited to a lot of you know good schools, and and um, and people they want to beat you, sure, right? And so, um, yeah, there was pressure for sure. I mean, you don't lose a home meet until eighty three. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, yeah I don't know all those numbers. I just, I, I, it, it went, we went for a long time. I know we, we first we home loss was 83. I, I have my friends that tease me because, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact that we went top three in the nation 10 years in a row or something like that. Yeah. You know, but I have my friends that criticize me because you only won it once, you know, so. <laughs> And my friend Greg Marson, he won it a whole bunch of times. So, <laughs> oh, that first win, what was that like? The big one. Yeah, honestly, and, and uh, I've I've told people this, even with my athletes, even with my athletes, we all it was at Penn State in front of ten thousand people. We beat Penn State. Last girl up, the girl I was just talking about, her name was Carolyn Burdick at the time, and she had to score a nine. Point one five or nine point something to win, and and she scored nine point one five. We won by five hundredths of a point or, or one tenth of a point, something like that. What event was she on? Uh, floor. Floor. Okay. And they had they had their best athlete on bars, I think, at the same time, and uh, and she had been an Olympian. So it was, it, it, like I said, it was the it was the largest crowd ever at Rec Hall at that point in time. Wow. So it was a big deal. We all were super happy right afterwards. The next morning, we were all sitting in the lobby of the hotel getting ready to get on a bus and come home. And the mood wasn't what you would expect. It wasn't joyful. It wasn't, man, it was awesome, man. We, we, man, let's, let's do it again. You know, you were great, whatever. And we all talked about it because everybody recognized we were a really close group of people and, and, um, and what it was, we knew we, we hadn't done our best. We won the meet. There was the, the year before we had done our best and we came in second. And, and the, the mentality or the, um, the culture that, that we created, I, not, not me, not, not that I created, but that we as a, as a team, my assistant coaches, the trainers, the, the athletes, obviously, was that our goal was to go out there and do our best. And we hadn't done our best. And so um, one of the things that I learned from Coach Wolf early on was that process trumps goal. you got to focus on the process. you got to give everything to the process. And if you do that, you'll eventually get your goals, but you can't focus on your goals. In other sports, it doesn't matter how you swing the bat. If you get the ball over second base and you get on first, you accomplished your goal, right? No, one's, no one cares about how you swung the bat necessarily. Right. It's so football. They don't, they don't judge you on your form as you dive across the goal line. But gymnastics, every movement is judged. Every, every, and so the process becomes super, super important. So what happened at Penn State was we realized that we hadn't done our – because our focus was on the process. And then when we got our goal, we weren't super happy with it that day. Trust me, we got home and got happy about it. <laughs> okay. By the time we got home, we got over the, hey, we didn't do our best. We, hey, we're national champions. But, Tell but, me yeah. they put you on a plane. You didn't have to drive a van out. No, we, we, <laughs> we, we flew. Don Shields was a president, and he called up to congratulate us. And, yeah, he, that was a good deal. I was say, that's a hell of a long ride to Penn State in a bus full of girls yeah. to get out there. Yeah. How were the other coaches at the time? I mean, you start off and you've got success. Bam, right off the bat. Was was Dick or Augie or any of the guys and, and gals, Judy's there at the time. Are they supportive? Are they in awe? Are they can't believe that you've got a, this rocket ship going all of 100%. a sudden? 100%. I'm not a yesterday guy at all. Uh, I think we were talking about that earlier. Mm -hmm. um, but if there was a time in my life that I could 
if I could still keep my, my, my wife and my boys, <laughs> if I could go back, um, Augie, Dick Wolf, Judy Garman, Neil Stoner, Bobby Dye, um, Mel Franks, Pete Don I mean, just all those guys. It was an amazing time. Mm-hmm. It was, and nobody was jealous of any. Everybody else was helpful. If if um, if a coach, uh, Vance Redfern was an assistant athletic director, he'd be out there sweeping the halls before gymnastics meet or a basketball game, emptying the trash. Um, it was a tight knit group of coaches and and administrators, and it was it was awesome. It was the best time of my life. Yeah, you. It's funny you don't realize when you're in the best of times when it's happening. You look back at it late now, later, and you go, boy, that was fun. Yeah, you're, you're right. To some extent, we were always thinking about, okay, how are we going to win this meet or how are we going to win this game or whatever? And we talked about how are we going to raise this much money? Right. <laughs> there was a lot of a lot of that that went around. Um, but we we enjoyed it. I mean, we, we enjoyed it. We enjoyed each other for sure. And you mentioned earlier before we started that your office mate was Judy. Right. Was that pretty awesome to have someone that, that caliber you can maybe bounce ideas off of and use as like she, she taught me so much she she was a, a great mentor she was obviously a very skilled coach she was a really great recruiter she was an amazing fundraiser she had a sense of business and a sense of finance and she knew how to get her program from point a to point b she was uh um she was honest with me. She was straightforward with me. We, we got along really, really well. At one point in time, in fact, um, I was on a recruiting trip once, and they were, where'd they play? They don't play in Omaha. Where, where was their? Uh, Oklahoma. Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma City. Yeah. Yeah, so they were in Oklahoma for the Nationals. And so I took a detour, and I got to do uh, infield practice with them. I hit. I hit <laughs> Fungo. Or, fungo, yeah, yeah. For, for the girls. And uh uh, I was a big fan of hers and and her team and and. Um, Did you guys bounce off like coaching philosophy yeah, 100%. and yeah, and for I'll, you to I'll, like how to deal with women? You know, she's got years of experience with it, and coaching women and yeah. men are a little different. Yeah, a, a, a lot, and we were very open and honest and frank about right. things. Um, at one point in time, we figured out that if she went to compete or I went to compete. Uh, our teams had about a 950% chance of winning whatever it was. I mean, we had a, our office was going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at that point, you're, that office, the two of you were really running it in the school. Yeah. Well, and another person I spent to, Leanne Grocky was our athletic director, she, our women's athletic director. Right. And she and Neil were, were a force to be reckoned with. They were really good at what they did. And you credit Leanne for, I think she, she might have, hired Judy. Neil hired me, but she might have hired Judy, but yeah. At that time, you know, it's, uh, there's winning going on, Title IX's taking place, all these things are happening, there's some coaching changes. Are you feeling a shift in like the early 80s with other teams starting to dump money into other, into the, into their Title IX programs where now you're, you're not getting maybe every girl, it's more of a competitive in your sport? Hundred uh, percent. Title Nine was not great for Cal State Fullerton. I I get the point of it. I, um, mm-hmm. I, I get the obviously the the major emphasis was to make sure that there were more opportunities for young women to play sports. 
at Fullerton, however, <laughs> right. Judy and I, we were one of the best fundraisers that, that we had, and we were able to go out and raise money for our programs, and we had the support of our athletic administration and the president to do that. When Title IX came about, instantly a ton of money was dumped into the bigger schools. Right. Um, like I mentioned before, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas. Who before just didn't even pay attention. Well, exactly, because they were focused on football, football basketball, basketball, and baseball. Right. Well, all of a sudden, now their their antenna's up, and they want to focus on the women's sports. And so one day, um, Alabama has a budget of whatever, and the next day they got a million dollars, and they're using a jet to fly their team to wherever. And um, and Fullerton couldn't keep up, right? Right. And, and it was uh, very difficult for us to maintain that when you you look at our winning percentage in the 70s did, yeah. and the 80s and then you can see it all of a sudden whoa what the heck happened that here? mid 80s it just goes yeah. yeah and that's because we couldn't keep up financially we were able to give five scholarships or four scholarships or whatever and other schools are giving out full rides so maybe yeah, we don't get the top recruit like we did. Right. Or you're only be able to give this girl a third of a scholarship and she's like, "Well, I can get a full ride to UCLA. I'm off I yeah. go." Yep. And you can't fault them for that. No. It's just No, it's just uh, it's For just, you it's just a battle. It's just how it worked out. Right. You know, Cal State Fullerton, Southwest Missouri, Clarion State. Those colleges, those small colleges that invested in certain women's programs because they either believed in the personnel or the sport itself, or maybe the athletic director had a background, you know, right? And, and, and that and went it, away. And it happened in all women's sports, like Old Dominion won women's basketball championship. They probably will never sniff the Final Four again, where they used to be a powerhouse. Right. There was a couple other ones like that, and it was sad to see where those little schools had chances, and now it, it all comes down to budgets. And I guess you could make the case if you step back, you take off your, your Titan sweatshirt and step back and say, well, with, with the larger schools giving that kind of money to now their women's side of this, more women are going to get to participate. Mm -hmm. Like right. big schools that can have how many ever sports they have, you know, that from rowing to right. volleyball to gymnastics yeah. Stanford to swimming. Has like 30 to, some yeah. odd. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now more women are getting opportunities than, than, than they did before. Um, but still, for, for us, it was painful, and uh, it ended up really kind of spelling the end of our sport. Right. It was the slow drip of mm -hmm. death that just kind of mm -hmm. finally wore out on it. Yeah, like what happened to football. Right. Was there ever thought at some point for you, like, maybe I'll either go to the men's side or I'll look at another university? Like, did anybody start calling and knocking on doors during that time for you? Because you're successful. Yeah. There was, uh, there was one occasion when um, uh, we were competing against UCLA and um, we had a pretty good record against them and their athletic director asked if she could speak to me after the meet. And um, she asked me if I was happy at Cal State Fullerton and I said I was. And, and I'm, I'm thankful that I chose that direction. Mm -hmm. um, but it definitely, <laughs> UCLA went on to develop an awesome women's gymnastics program. They hired a really good coach, Val Condos, who's a good friend of mine. Right. And she, I mean, how many national championships? She won five or six or something like that. But UCLA chose to invest in the women's gymnastics program, and Fullerton wasn't able to. They just, yeah. So just different budgets. Just how it worked out. Right. At the time, I right. was really happy at Fullerton, and we had just beaten them, right? So mm -hmm. but then things changed. I know. It's that, inter it's that interesting question. If you say to her, 
no, maybe I'm just kind of happy. Does she go, well, then <laughs> let's go to lunch. Let's, let's talk. Yeah. Yeah, I, I took it as an as an opportunity, and I and and I was happy at Fullerton, right? And I didn't, um, yeah. You, you didn't see that giant snowball coming. I did not. <laughs> I did not. Shame on me, because right. it, it it had already started rolling. I, I I could have seen it, but I didn't. I mean, is that the hard part too? Is you're you're so invested in your sport in your school that you know you just you didn't want to do like what similar what Augie did. Where he's Illinois came to him and said, "We're doubling your salary. You want right. to come?" And he took the shot for three years, and he went. Right. Was that something like you just you were just you know branded Fullerton? You didn't want to leave, even when it was starting to really go bad. And I hate to say that, but those ninety years, it was the numbers were all against you. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Gosh, I, I'm trying to think. I, I look back, and my parents lived in Fullerton. My close friends were in Fullerton. My church was in Fullerton. I mean, there, I was a Fullerton guy, not just the university, right. the, the community. And so many people, If you, in fact, you can't talk to Augie now because he's passed away, <laughs> but uh, if you talk to the, the people who were successful at Fullerton, I'm sure every single one of them, you, every single one of them would tell you it was because of the people that lived in the community, the surrounding communities that supported them. And so you're not just attached to the school. In fact, I bet there's certain programs in the country where the, 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 the athletes and the coaches, they're attached to the school because that's where their support came from. Mm-hmm. At Fullerton, the support didn't come from the school to some degree. Most of the support, John, we talked about John Gavin at Baggy Sporting Goods. Small little sport, good store on Commonwealth Boulevard. That's where a lot of our support came from. You know, Fullerton Savings and Loan, Jerry Christie. That's where our support came from. Buck Johns and Larry Slay. I mean, you start going down the, the list of all these people. So when you were attached to Fullerton, when I was attached to Fullerton, I, I was attached to those people as well, not yeah. just the school. Well, I mean, that's amazing, too, that you could, you know the sporting goods shop guy and you know the bank guy and you know like the restaurant here that that's a special thing at those times at Fullerton that there was support outside of the university that helped keep things going well and and that became what um mattered to us right we felt part of that community so when you when you feel a part of a community at least for me I didn't want to leave that community right and uh Gene Murphy said the same thing once that it was Fullerton he really fell in love with yeah, the, the the way that people treated you and respected you and were appreciative of, of what you'd done. Uh, I love people still in Fullerton. They still call me coach. <laughs> That's great. That means a lot. Yeah. You know, um, funny story. My son, he's, um, well, he's 26 now. But <clears throat> when he was in about the second grade, third grade, he had an assignment. He had to come home and ask his mom and dad, like, how they got their first names. So, Mom, why did your, why did your parents call you Bonnie? And she had a story, whatever it was. And he looks at me and says, Dad, why did your parents name you Coach? Because <laughs> that's what everybody called me. Right. So as a little boy, that's what he just assumed yeah. your name was. Right. I call you Dad, they call you Coach. Right. But <laughs> the point being is that when you're the coach in that community, to me it meant a lot. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a very special thing. Mm-hmm. Were there sp- special athletes you were trying to recruit that – 
slip through your fingers that you just kind of wish like, boy, if we gotten her, that might have prolonged the program or helped us out here or there? Um, you could always go back and look and see, gosh, right. if we'd have had that kid, if we'd had that kid. We were pretty fortunate. We had some really good athletes. I you mean, had some like great athletes. Really good yeah. athletes. Um, some of the top recruits. In fact, there's a, a recruit that um, we ended up getting. Her name was Ronnie Berrios at the time. And uh, um, probably top three, top five in the nation at, at that point in time. And she came to us. And I had a friend of mine whose father collected vintage cars. And so when I picked Ronnie up at the airport, I picked her up in a, I don't know, 1930-something, uh, I don't know, Phantom Mercedes, I don't know, some, some, <laughs> some fancy car, right? And uh, um, that was a big deal, right? And then we took her to Disneyland and took her across on the ferry down at Newport Beach, and we, we, we rolled did. out the red carpet. Yeah, right? sounds like it. <clears throat> So her next stop on her recruiting trip was at uh, Oregon State. And Sylvia Moore was the athletic director there. And so Ronnie told, obviously, the athletes on the team about her trip to Fullerton and about the fancy car and the whatever it was. And uh, we ended up getting Ronnie, not Oregon State. And the next year, uh, Sylvia Moore put a rule in the NC2A rule book that you had to pick, and, and still exists today as far as I know, Coaches can pick up athletes either in their own personal car or the state vehicle. They can't go out and do what I did and get a 1935 Mercedes, you know, limousine. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what a, I don't even remember what kind of car. But it, was, it was an old car. It was really long, and it was really cool. <laughs> I love that, you, that your recruiting at Fullerton affected the NCAA rule book to be like, whoa, hey, hey, hey. Yeah. Can't do that. So we, we got some pretty good kids. Even though Oklahoma State can pick up your kid in a <laughs> private jet, that's okay. What's the, owned by, it's owned, but by, it's the, owned, by, the owned by the university. Yeah. Fullerton yeah. doesn't have a paper airplane, so they no. can't even. No, we had to do whatever we had to do. Was, was it at the time, like, because when you were recruiting, no internet, no website, like, it was word of mouth through other coaches, people at other centers like how was recruiting the process for you back then well you were had to rely on a lot of coaches um or was there a good networking i had a pretty decent network because of my relationship with the kips gymnastics program okay. i'd traveled all over the country out of the country uh, one of the first kids on my team was from canada right um i had um yeah so so i had a network that was already kind of established and um, and then we had early success, so that 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 was uh, beneficial for us. Um, the hardest part about the recruiting was we just didn't have the money, you know, like to go fly and visit people and stuff. And I remember the first time that we started doing that, it was a big deal. Like the first recruiting trip where the where we used state money, which was fundraised money by us, right. um, to go somewhere. And but then as as when Title Nine kicked in guess what sort of recruiting money kick in and that's and that was another tough challenge for fullerton did you get any of that recruiting money in your salary because i mean five hundred dollars <laughs> a year is not something a man can live on well, i think the next year i got a thousand dollars a year because remember charlotte and i we were splitting that i think we split the thousand that's why mine was 500 and hers was 500 
And That's then, a big bonus, 50%. And, and yeah, the next year was 1000 If you so. kept that going by the time you retired, you'd have been a very wealthy man. <laughs> I ended up doing fine, so no complaints. So with the program going in the direction you didn't want it to go in in those in those 90s, were you and, – and then were you tinkering in the kitchen? Because Coach's Oats is not something natural. Like Gene Murphy doesn't have – a brewing company at this time and Augie's not doing fish and chips. Where do you come about deciding oats is something I'm going towards? Um, so I didn't marry That's a pretty common question. Like how did you go from teaching somersaults to selling? Yeah, oatmeal it's not the like, normal transition. Right, right. And, um, I didn't marry <clears throat> until I was 41 and when you're 41, you don't ask your parents to help pay for the <laughs> wedding, right? <laughs> You've already got silverware and blenders and stuff. And Bonnie was older as well. And um, so we got married on December 7th. And um, so when Christmas came around, which a couple weeks later, right. we had spent our money on the wedding that we had. And we didn't have a very big wedding, but whatever we had, we spent on the, on the wedding. So we didn't have any money for Christmas presents. So where Coach's Oats comes into the picture is that we decided if you were my friend back then in 91, we would have invited you to our house on Christmas Eve morning for a breakfast. And we started at 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning for people that had to go to work early. And then we went until about 11. And we made everything from scratch. We, we squeezed the oranges. We made coffee cake. We ground the beans for the coffee. Um, <clears throat> And we thought, we got this idea, why don't we make oatmeal? And um, <laughs> It's quite a commitment. I, I don't know where the idea even came <laughs> from, but it, it, we, we got the idea. And so we, we had, um, you know, a couple weeks to work on it because the 7th to, to Christmas Eve. And we went to Fullerton Hardware. We bought a grinder. And we went to the health food store on Commonwealth. And we bought some groats, which is what the oats are when they come from the field. And we started experimenting with how to make this oatmeal. And um, one of my friends who was there, I was telling you about him earlier, named Chris Kohlberg, who worked for Arrowhead Water, was a big sponsor of our gymnastics program. We became really super good friends. Um, anyway, he, he was there. A bunch of other people were there. And the kids of my gymnastics team were helping serve the breakfast so that Bonnie and I, who were newly married, could visit with our friends. <laughs> and they were in Coach's house. They were in Coach's kitchen, and they would say, hey, Matt, would you like some of Coach's oats? That's where the name came from. And Chris Kohlberg, being there, being in the food industry, recognized that there was something unique about this product and said, you should take this to a trade show, or why don't we take this to a trade show? Now, have you made this kind of oatmeal oats thing before? No. So this is just on a fly Bonnie could have said, let's do pancakes. Let's do... We did pancakes too. <laughs> yes, but in a unique way. Like all of a sudden, the way you did it was so special that everybody fell in love with it? It's really unique. I mean, it's totally different. Coach's Oats isn't like any other oatmeal. We've got a patent for it. It doesn't get pasty like regular oatmeal does. Um, you can put it in a steam kettle and it sits there for hours and hours without going bad. Um, you can... Yeah, it's, it's, it, it tastes a lot like steel-cut oatmeal. <laughs> We're getting into the weeds now. Right, yeah. Steel cut oatmeal's got a crunchier and got got more of a mouthfeel to it, but you can't bake with steel cut. You could bake with ours. 
remember, we weren't trying to start a business. We were just right. making oatmeal for our friends. It right. just turned out that way. It's just a Christmas get together. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so where like your friend recommends like this is something kind of special. How long until you decide this could be something? Okay, the natural trade toe is in March. So this is December. So in March, he takes it. He um, he invites me to go to the trade show with him because he wants to show it to show it around and get get people's input. And I'm the, being the genius that I am. I said I'm going to go ride my bike that day. I'm not interested in going, <laughs> so I didn't go. But he believed enough in the product and thought it had potential, and he took it anyway. And he met some different people that gave him their business card. One of the people that he met was from Roman Meal. They used to make the bread. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> they're located in Fargo. And, and uh, when he came back from the trade show, he gave me these business cards and said, you should call these people. And I did. So I, I called, and that's how we got started. Now, what year is this? 1990, 1992, I guess, because I got married in 91. So now we're in March, so we're in 92. Where, where now is the balance between, and, and you were always balancing early on in oh. your career with multiple <laughs> jobs, where you're balancing Fullerton and maybe this possibly yeah. virgining company. So, like I said, we, we, Bonnie and I never thought about starting a company, and it just was, it all kept coming to us. Right. right? Chris says, let's do this, and the Roman Mule guy invites me to Fargo, and, and it just, it just kept pulling on us, right? And um, and I was still coaching, so right, Bonnie, yeah. Bonnie would drive over to the university in her Honda. She'd pick me up at lunchtime. We'd go drive to some potential customer. We'd cook up the oatmeal in the parking lot on a Coleman camp stove, <laughs> and we'd take it in. One time, one time they saw us. They were they were up on the whatever floor they were on and they were looking out their window and here's me and Bonnie cooking up the oatmeal right. in, the, in the parking lot. <laughs> it made the story better. Sure. Uh, sort of, right? Right. And, uh, and uh, yeah. And so then I, then she'd bring me back to school and then I would coach and we were working out of our house and it was on a very part time, very limited basis while we were, you know, trying to figure it out. Right. Was there any thought process to, I should get things patented. Should I have a real name? Like, where was the that? <laughs> well, that? You, don't think, you don't think Coach's Oats is a real but, name? <laughs> but did you? But did you? But did you think it was at the beginning, or were you thinking, no. "Oh, we should probably call it Grand Oats"? Or actually, the, the the some of the people that we were working with at, at the Arrowhead Water Company, uh, I think they um, they had a marketing department and stuff, and we got to be friends with those people. And they thought it was a great name. Okay. So when they encouraged us to go ahead and keep the name, in fact, I think she said something like, you know, your product's good, but your name's worth more. They weren't worried it was too athletic. No, okay. They, they, thought it was, they thought it was a good Spot name. Spot on. And, um, yeah, we, we, we got a fair amount of encouragement at the beginning uh, to, to kind of run with this. And, and people, people back in Fargo, they encouraged us to get a patent for it because they had never seen anything like it. And, um, so we did, we ended up getting two patents actually for, for the product and, and which was expensive, but right. Yeah. But, no, but, but beneficial. So who helps you with that patent process? Like this is no internet. So you're got to do all this legwork on yourself to figure out how a patent you get one. Yeah. You know, the, 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 the good thing about working at Cal State Fullerton was 
you had um, you were really connected to the community. Okay, you know, there was a need there, right? We, we none of us are any good if we're if we're not connected and and with with our community and um, and so we had people that were supporters of the athletic department that were that were endowed in with the university lawyers. And, and so, hey, we're starting up this company. One, one fellow was uh, vice president of a bank. So he said, well, you should talk to so-and-so, and, and, and they'll tell you about what legal things you have to do to start a business. And that led to a discussion. That led to a patent attorney uh, with a, and a building in Newport Beach that overlooks the ocean, and the guy charges a zillion dollars, but he's really worth it. And, <laughs> but, but, yeah, so, it, again, it was going back to those Fullerton connections um, that helped us get started. How was doing this little project as it was then and dealing with coaching? Um, it was really little. So there wasn't a lot. It wasn't a distraction for sure. Um, it did start to pick up some promise. And I knew, remember, I just got married. Right. And my... Yeah. my <laughs> Newly married, yeah, new my, company. My first son was born um, in 93. So... Between 91 and 93, I'm starting to figure out, you know what? I want to be a father more than I want to be a coach. Coaching was, 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 you know, 110% all in, go hard. And I knew that um, if I wanted to be a good father, I couldn't be a good coach. At least that's how I felt. Right. I'm not saying that's for everybody, but sure. for me, that that's... So I, I was leaning in a new direction, right? I, w I was headed in a new direction. And starting a business, it, it doesn't, you just don't like have an idea, boom, start. You know, you got to raise money, you got to do a business plan, you got to start off really small, you make a bunch of mistakes, and you can't be in a hurry. Remember, we, we talked about process versus goal. So mm -hmm. the process is lengthy. I mean, and this goes back to you being able to lean on people. If you didn't have that relationship with the people at the university or the support, this company probably never gets off the ground because you don't understand. 100%. 100%. I, we knew nothing about business. You know, Bonnie and I, Bonnie was a graphic designer, took graphic design at the University of Illinois. Turned out pretty good because I got a graphic designer right. that I sleep with, which is sure. awesome. So, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah. And, yeah, because you got yourself a coach and a graphic designer. That's not a good way to start a business. <laughs> you know, like, it, thank God it worked out. Actually, she's the only one that went to school to learn how to do what we do around here. <laughs> That's true. Right? Jenny was a yeah. baseball secretary. Randy was a sports writer. And I taught people somersaults. So, <laughs> thank, God. thank God for Bonnie. Yeah, you really. got yourself a logo and 100%. design. 100%. Yeah, for sure. How, how were those last couple of years at Fullerton for you as it's winding down? You know, it was difficult, honestly, because, you know, when you, when you were competing at a, such a high level and able to um, – go after the best recruits in the country and, and have that level of um, respect. Um, and then to realize that he just didn't have a bank account big enough to, to run with the, you know, the Alabama's, Georgia's, Florida's. Um, uh, it was hard, you know. But at the same time, though, um, you had great respect and appreciation for the athletes that weren't going to go to Alabama, Georgia, Florida, or UCLA. Those kids still had value. Those kids were still in love with the sport. They'd been doing the sport since they were five or six years old, and maybe they didn't reach the level good enough to go to UCLA, but they still wanted to compete. So there was 
it was still fun to go to the gym and it was still um, uh, a good experience. Um, even my wife loved it. Uh, um, it wasn't like we disliked it, but it obviously didn't have the same ring. <laughs> the bell mm-hmm. didn't have the same ring as it, as it had before. And it was also kind of a sign that maybe something else was next for me. Right. It's, it's good to see that coming. You know, like your time, that run that you right. had. I mean, that it, my it, brain was working, right? My, right? my brain was saying, okay, there, there needs to be something else that you can go build because this thing's kind of built about as far as it's going to be built. Right. And you ended but still did another year in fundraising for the university. Right. So that was that a nice, easier, I guess, step away than like having the program like drop on you like it did in 2008 or them firing you or not renewing your contract? <laughs> like you were still around yeah. the university and the people? Well, I had great respect. The The person that came in after me um, had been a gymnast, uh, competed for us, and uh, Julie Bose was her name, and she's mm-hmm. phenomenal. Was a great coach and did a really good job with the program. So it was good to still be part, uh, be able to help Julie when I could, right, and still be part of the program and participate kind of as an outsider almost, but yet still on campus and facilitate any way that I could, help make that transition easier. And and I still had friends there, right? So I still got to see my friends on a daily basis. So, yeah. So this is 99. You finish up. Coaches Oates is six years old. How is it as a company now? Well, we're, um, I wasn't making, I didn't take a salary for, for okay. several years. Um, These are things people need to understand. Like, doesn't mean you start this company, all of a sudden you're paying yourself six figures. Yeah, I paid myself zero figures <laughs> and Bonnie zero figures. We worked out of our home. Uh, we ended up hiring people. They would show up at nine o'clock. At one point, by the time, like say six or seven, eight years later than what you just said there, um, you know, we had people show up at nine o'clock in the morning and leave at five. And we had the, the family room, a porch off the office, one of our bedrooms that was all coaches oats. And, uh, in fact, when we actually moved into an office, one of my sons, the, the truck came and took the, the desks and all the office furniture that we had. And he said, well, when are they coming back for the rest of the stuff? And what do you go? What, what do you mean? He goes, well, aren't we going to go live with the, like he thought you lived with Coach's Oats. So <laughs> he thought we were going to be moving out of the house and go go live wherever the office was going to be. It just made sense to him, right? Because he was used to seeing everybody. That's not the way it works, kiddo. <laughs> <laughs> That's just the office furniture. It's going away. Yeah, so the first few years were, were, were lean, but we invested in our employees and obviously in the product and in the promotion of the product and things like that. Do you think it helped you being at Fullerton where you started with a $500 salary, you didn't have a lot, you had to fundraise yourself, that it was that kind of energy helped start a business from scratch? Um, I, I'm sure if you got to, if Gene were around or Augie were around, Dick Wolf were around, it's really sad that they're not. Um, but all those guys would tell you that you start with what you want and then you figure out how to get there. It isn't like someone gives you a bunch of stuff and then you say, okay, what do I want to do with it? Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. So, you know, Bonnie and I started to build a vision 
and and what what could this possibly be? And we had to have people sort of convince us because it wasn't our intent to have a business. We didn't start out saying we want to sell oatmeal for a career. Right. I mean, um, that's the crazy thing. Yeah. And and so in nineteen eighty eight, this was not in your vision. Not at all. <laughs> You were just having friends over for a, for breakfast, and now yeah. it's a business. Yeah, and it kind of. Uh, I was talking to you earlier. We 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 almost feel we we do feel it's a responsibility to ask people when they're when they're talking to us. Is it secular? Do you want the secular non secular version? Because um, we're people of faith. This thing came to us. We didn't ask for it. We weren't prepared. This is a true story. Someone, I think it was the vice president of Fullerton Savings Loans, said something to me about you need to download Excel. You need to have, you need to learn how to work Excel. I thought Excel was what athletes did. I had no clue that it was a program on a computer that you stick numbers into and that it tells you information that's supposed to be valuable. Um, we had a lot of things to learn for sure. And um, yeah. I mean, how was that? How was that learning business? Did you embrace the challenge? I don't, I don't ever remember any times where um, we didn't want to do it, right? It, it, it kept growing on us. Like we, it kept growing. We want to do it more. We want to do it bigger. We want to. And the thing that, we, that started to become clear to Bonnie and I um, Titan Gymnastics wouldn't have been Titan Gymnastics if we wouldn't have had people like Arrowhead or if we had if we didn't have people that believed in what we were doing. Not 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 the winning part, mm -hmm. but just investing in young people's lives and trying to make, make their lives better and to teach certain lessons, right? And we started to quickly learn and grab onto the fact that, you know what, if we do this coaches oats thing, we could do some we could have some fun. Like we could do some good with our company and it could be valuable to other people. And, and we've had some fun with it. Is there any early experiences that you wish? Because, you know, you can kind of break the company up into like now we're going into 20, over 20 years. The Almost first, 30. Yeah. Is the first like, let's say 10. That's the growth period. You wish you could have done something different to either – Make it smoother, make the transition quicker. Hmm. Because over thirty, there's that's a big block. But the first ten, that's where things don't make it or make it. Yeah. If I had to do over again, we would have raised well, first of all, Bonnie Knight, when we went to banks to borrow money, start a business, you need money. I was sure. I was a gymnastics coach and she was a, a an art teacher. She was getting her credential to teach art. So we, we didn't have a lot of money. Um so we went to banks, and banks said, well, we'll loan you the money, but then you got to put your house up for collateral. And we don't want to do that. Um, so we, um, we had people that asked, asked, actually came to us and say, Coach, you know, if you start this business, we'd like to invest in it. Okay. And so um, we gradually, we started taking some money, but we didn't take enough. So then we had to go back to the well because it costs this much money to get into the grocery stores or it costs this much money to renew the patent or it costs this much money to hire another person or this much money to get the trucks to whatever. Right. And, um, all the things you just didn't know. The first time that, uh, the mill wanted to send a trailer truck 
we got a call at the house saying um, the truck will arrive at your address at such and such a time. This is like a semi coming with 42,000 pounds of oats. I said, we're house in Brea. You, you can't bring a trailer truck to my house in Brea. <clears throat> and they go, well, that's your business address. I go, yeah, but it's my house. And they said, well, you need to get a warehouse. Well, I didn't know how to do that. I mean, it sounds really stupid right now to, to say I didn't know how to get a warehouse, but I didn't know how to get a warehouse. And uh, so there was a lot of things that we had to figure out that people should have known maybe perhaps if they were starting a business. But that's the, the time and money. It took longer than I expected, and it took way more money than I expected. Yeah. And we had to go, and we actually had, I think, maybe three offerings, three or four offerings uh, to raise money to meet the needs that we had. What did you do right those first couple of years that you were surprised of? Gosh, no one's ever asked me that question before. Well, the one thing we did right was figure out how to make an amazing oatmeal. I mean, when that's the whole God part, because Bonnie, look, you know how the true story, how we, how, how the oatmeal came about. The true story is, is that we made the oatmeal. We were getting ready to make it for that breakfast and every time we made it, it turned out kind of slimy, like oatmeal can be, mm -hmm. right? So being the genius that I am, I know that, and I, I have like no cooking experience at all, but I know that if I burn hamburgers or burn hot dogs on the grill, they get kind of crispy. So my idea was to take the, the oats that we ground up that were turning out pasty, I'm going to stick them in the oven and burn them. And I did that, and we stuck it in the oven, turned them on till it smelled like they were done. We pulled them out. We put those in the boiling water, and that's what became Coach's Oats. And it turns out what we were doing, we, we were caramelizing. It's called caramelization, where oats have a natural sugar in them. And when you put them in the oven, what smells good when you're making cookies is the sugar burning. So I was caramelizing the oats. Is that that crack, yeah. that crack process? Yeah. yeah, cracked and toasted. So when we toast our oats now, they turn out different. So, and it worked and it worked. <laughs> so that's something that we did really right. Uh, my friend from Arrowhead will always tell me product is king. You can make a lot of mistakes, but product is king. Yeah, absolutely. So, so that was one thing we did really right. The second thing that I would say that we did really right was that, um, I have an amazing team of people. Jenny's been with me since she was 19. You know, Randy's been with me like 15 years. I mean, the people, uh, our controller's been with me even longer. We, we've we've um, attracted and brought in really, really good people. Is that a bit of uh, the coach in you, recruiting the right mm -hmm. people? I think so. And that includes our partners, like the people that, that manufacture our oats in Fargo, like amazing partners. Like, we have a handshake agreement. This is, this is 2022, and we have a handshake agreement from back in 1990-whatever um, with, with that family. It's a family-owned business, and uh, it's Dakota Specialty Milling now. It was Roman Meal. Um, our, our people at CalPAC that, that pack, we've, we just have great partners, just like, just like Cal State Fullerton. You have good partnerships. Right. Were there moments in the last 30 years where you thought the company wasn't going to make it, <laughs> whether it was financial or things beyond your control, 
things like that make you cry when you're going to sleep. Yeah. And and wonder how much money your parents are going to give you when they die and how much money you're going to get from your grandmother when she dies. Those kind of moments. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, because the, there's things that just happen, whether it's drought, famine, competition, uh People just don't want your product anymore. That it goes outdated. Yeah, nine eleven was was our probably our first major major. If we don't figure this out, we're gonna we're gonna fail. See now, people aren't gonna think a food product, Coach's Oats, and nine eleven. Well, we were selling cookies to the airlines, and they were a big customer of ours. And then one day they stopped flying, and and we were talking about this earlier. We have no complaints compared to the people who lost family members or whatnot. Um, but it threatened our company because all of a sudden there's no cash flow. We have products sitting in, in warehouses that's going bad uh, that we can't sell anymore. Um, I had employees that we still had to pay. We actually had to let some people go um, during 9-11. Um, but, you know, we were talking about Fullerton earlier, and, and now you asked that question. Um when you, the more you invest, the less likely you are to let go and fail. I promise you, if I had not gotten in, sometimes I think, man, it'd be nice if I didn't have any investors and we make profit. I get all the profit. But you know what? If we wouldn't have had investors, there'd been several times I would have quit because it was too hard, it was too costly, it was too expensive, it was too emotional, it was too whatever. But you have these people that believe in you and that gave you their money. <laughs> Mostly they give you their trust. They, they, wouldn't, want, they wouldn't say this, but I, they could lose the money and, and they'd still have tomorrow, right? But sure. they gave you, they, they, they trusted you. And if it wouldn't have been for those people trusting, there were times I definitely would have walked away. Yeah, that's, that's something that, people forget is that if you and you have investors you have you have to take care of them they're they're investing in you coaches oats lynn and bonnie you ask jenny you you out there and, and ask uh, she's now our president of the company it started with us 19 she's 44 now you go ask her who she works for she t- she'll, she won't say lynn or bonnie she'll say the investors right she she knows and we all feel that way that when we make decisions we make them with with our investors in mind those early years, it's kind of interesting to think nowadays it's so easy for a company to promote. You got social media, your website, you got all the branches of Twitter and Instagram, Facebook, all that stuff. How was those early days for you to promote and advertise the company? Nobody knows the coaches oats in yeah. Florida. Or I was Montana. really, really, really lucky <clears throat> when we were trying to raise money as a as a gymnastics coach. Arrowhead was one of the people I've mentioned them a couple times that. Uh, really bought into our program and supported us. I was fortunate to be able to spend a lot of time with those people. And actually, uh, my wife, graphic designer, um, Arrowhead eventually got bought out by Perrier, and then I think they got bought out by Nestle or something after that. Mm-hmm. And my wife, being a graphic designer, was able to pick up some work working for their, their company. So we got to spend some time with their marketing people, their idea people, the people that are trying to promote the brand. Mm-hmm. So I think that was really helpful for us, right? And uh, whether it comes to designing logos or whether it comes to designing ads, things like that for the grocery stores. Um, and then just traveling with Chris to the different grocery stores and talking to those people and learning the trade. Because that's that was the only place that we could promote. Like you said, with the social media wasn't around. 
newspaper ads were really expensive, so it was pretty much street promoting, okay. uh, relationship promoting. Right. Not, yeah, you weren't doing 30-second. Yeah. No, it wasn't media promoting. It was relationship promoting. Yeah, you weren't doing 30-second TV spots in the Super Bowl to do coaches. Matt, <laughs> Matt, it's the same thing Go back to Cal State Fullerton. How did Augie raise money? How did Judy raise money? It was about relationships and, and going out there and, and meeting with actual individuals and people and telling your story. Yeah. I mean, that that does say a lot about those people the people that worked at Fullerton at that time, that, that 70s and 80s group that really understood more doesn't make you better. Better people make you better. And having them around you and, 100%. and, and working with them. I mean, the things that Augie and Gene, yourself, Dick, the whole group die, they understood that it wasn't millions of dollars a year that was going to make them better. Nope. Yeah. Mm-mm. As the company moves forward now, like, are you happy where it's at? Do you look at Coach's Oats and go, I can't believe we pulled this off? <laughs> Bonnie and I will tell you, sometimes people say, what do you do? And we have a hard time saying we sell oatmeal because it just sounds weird. Yeah. We, we, you know, but we're really glad we do. Um, am I happy where we are right now? I'm really happy with the team that we have. But right now, this period in time, uh, 2022, um, April 2022, it's a hard time for not just our business, a lot of businesses. And I, I'm happy that we're still here. I'm happy that we're still standing. Uh, trucking shortages, get, you know, tra- getting truck drivers, getting people to come into the factory to, to, to work on your product. Uh, inflation, the, the cost of things, it's a hard time to do business. But at the same time, um, you feel really proud of the fact that you're that you're still in the mix, right? That you still got your customers, you still have people that believe in you, and you're still delivering their product. You're still getting it done. Are we happy? No, works hard right now. This isn't. This isn't. I mean, we've had times where work's been really fun. You come in and everybody's in a great mood, and when you pick up the phone, you say yes. <laughs> now you pick up the phone, and you say no, or I don't know, maybe you know, and. Um, so th- that part's not fun. So I don't know if fun and happy necessarily go together. We're really grateful. Okay. We're, we're still grateful to be in the game. And we have plans for the future. And, and, and we have a future. So, yeah. If I had told you you'd be running Coach's Oats or being a part of Coach's Oats longer than you'd be coaching, hmm. would that make you, like, make, blow your mind? Like, no way. <laughs> I, <laughs> I didn't even – that's the first time I've, 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 never, I've never compared the years. That's interesting. Yeah. Is it longer than when I was yeah. coaching? How much? A lot. <laughs> really? Yeah. Because, wow. um, you know, you, you start, you ended in 98, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. You were at the school to 99. No, you're right, because that last year I, w- I, was, right. I wasn't coaching. Yeah. Um, every day when you have your own business, every day you wake up and there's something to do. It's like you go to work and you leave at 5 o'clock and you wait to come in for someone else to tell you what to do. Mm-hmm. You drive around, you, you and your wife, you talk about it at dinner, you talk about it when you're on vacation. You might argue about it on the way to Mammoth, right? right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what the logo should look like. You know, I like it this way, you like it that way. You know, what, what should our catchphrase be? Um, now I've got two of my boys that work for the company. And in fact, you talked about the social media thing. Yeah, we actually pay someone full-time salary to do social media and to do that kind of marketing because it's so necessary now. But Isn't that it's crazy? It is crazy. Yeah. 
Yeah. What's the future for Coaches Oats, Lynn? The future for Coaches Oats would be to, I would hope that the world gets a hold of itself and gets a little bit more normal where you can get ingredients and where you can get supplies. We, the fun of our business, we, we love selling oatmeal and we'd like to sell oatmeal to more people. Right now, I have a limited supply of oats that I can get because of the drought that happened in Canada. So I can't even go out and, and really try to get a bunch of new customers because I wouldn't be able to supply them. So we're stuck in a not be able to sell mode. Um, whether it's cookies or whether it's a pancake mix or, or uh, an energy um, uh, drink or whatever, things that we would like to do, we can't do right now because there's, there's no oats. <laughs> right. And not only are there no oats, it's hard to get cans, it's hard to get bottles, it's hard to get plastic, it's hard to get... So we're in, a, we're in kind of a unique position where we're, we're trying to really take care of our customers, the current customers that we have, to do the best we can and to, to protect and promote the brand. Um, and at the same time, be ready. Like we have, we had a whole bunch of ideas that when when the when the when the when the when the gates open and we can get oats again, we have ideas and we have people to talk to about okay, running with those ideas. But I have no idea when that's going to be. I would never have thought I'd be talking to you about paying seven dollars a gallon for gasoline, or can't get a truck to come out of Canada because they're on strike, or you know whatever. Uh, it's it's a crazy time right now. Yeah, for any small business owner, it is a absolutely difficult time. What what advice would you have for someone, you know, running? They're in their first couple of years of a small business. What advice do you have for them? Now that you're almost 30 years into yours. Yeah. Personally, like, this is very personal. Pray. Um, things can be so... Um, like if, if I were only happy or if I was only um, good with my team, uh, positive with my team, if I was only that way when things were going well, that would be a real problem because it doesn't always go well. And there, there has to be something, um, for me it's faith, for somebody else they might, call it, they might call it something different, but you have to have something bigger to believe in than just what, what your daily sales are or what your um, delivery times are. Does that make sense? Because yes. it's, it's always bouncing around. Mm -hmm. and, and that's no different than, and this is where the background, it's no different than when you're an athlete because every day isn't great. You have really lousy practices and you have to be able to walk off the field or walk, walk out of the gym and say, I'm still a really good gymnast. I'll get it tomorrow or I'll get it the next day. So that, that patience or belief in something that's deeper than what's right in front of you is really important. Whether it's a small business, whether you're an athlete or whatever it is, there has to be something that you believe in that's bigger than what you're dealing with right at that moment because that just changes all the time. Who, who knew there was going to be a war? Right. Right? Like, who knew there was going to be a drought in Canada? Who knows that that there's going to be 20,000 ships in the Long Beach Harbor, right? They, they can't get in and un yeah. unload the packaging that you need, right? Or the China, what? There's just so many things. And so you've got, and I, I'm really proud of these guys because they have the attitude, uh, the, the people that work here have an attitude that is deeper than just what we get with every phone call or with every sales report or whatnot. Right. What's more difficult, 
doing that pommel horse or running a small business? Well, first of all, I never did pommel horse. <laughs> right, but the girls did, right? You yeah, coached no, it. No, they didn't do pommel horse. They did. Oh, they, they vaulted. Oh, vaulted, horse. vaulted, right? Vaulted. vaulted. My bad. So what, yeah. what was what's more difficult? Yeah, what, uh, the I vault or, or or like just running a small business or um, or the uneven bars or. I would say that being a really successful coach and running a small business, you could lay one right on top of the other. There's so many things that are exactly the same. So many things, some, the, the kind of character that you have to have, the um, the kind of the ability to um, pick good partnerships, good people to, to partner with, including your wife. I mean, right. My wife's been through this drill and, and been laying next to me when I'm literally – tears in my eyes because I don't know where the next dollars are coming from and I don't want to pick up the phone and call Bob Manville and tell him I just lost all your money, right? So, um, and then you got to know, you got to learn what you, you know what? I have a friend named Eddie Sheldrake. He, you know Polly's Pies? Uh-huh. Yeah, he owns um, Polly's Pies. He was uh, John Wooden's first point guard, by the way. Okay. I can't believe I waited this long to get his <laughs> name in this interview. He's a huge mentor. I I don't know how much time we have, but we got forever. Yeah. Okay. So here's the kind of the good fortune that I've had. And then you, you go to that secular, non-secular. Cause so you, then when I tell the story, you tell me. So one night I get a phone call about nine 30, I'm laying in bed and my wife comes in. Cause I go to bed early. My wife comes in and she says, uh, Eddie Sheldrake's on the phone. Well, we had just started selling coaches oats to Polly's pies. And Eddie Sheldrake's the owner of Polly's Pie. So if he's calling my house, I want to take his call. I don't care what time it is. I go downstairs, and uh, I can't use all the words that Eddie uses because <laughs> he's a very colorful character. He was John Wooden's first point guard, by the okay. way, and in their UCLA Hall of Fame. And he's just, just a character and really smart. And he says, uh, Coach, says uh, Eddie Sheldrake, which I already knew, but he had right. to announce himself anyway. He says, uh, do you know why I called you? I said, no. <laughs> he says, here's the reason I called. He says, I got your thank you note the other day. You know, I, he says, I, I, I understand we did something on our menus. We mentioned you or whatever, and, and you wrote me a note and said thank you. He says, you know, when I send thank yous, I don't send paper. Because you know with paper, when you get done reading it, what do you do? You throw it in the trash. He says, I send jelly bellies. That way, every time they eat a jelly belly, they realize that I'm saying thank you. He goes, good night. And in the midst of all that was a whole bunch of swear words, right? <laughs> so hangs up on me. So a little while later, SkyWest Airlines uh, ordered another whole bunch of energy bars from us, like millions of energy bars. And normally I'd been sending a thank you note every time they sent an order. So this time, because of Eddie's phone call, I go down to Eddie's, Polly's Pies, they make great oatmeal cookies made with Coach's Oats. I um, took a whole bunch of those cookies. Jenny probably helped me. We wrapped them all up, put them in a basket, and sent them to Sky West to say thank you for their order on the energy bars. They get the cookies. They call me up from the conference room. They're having a big meeting. they got the president, vice president, all the, all the top people are there. Coach, we love these cookies. These cookies are amazing. Can you make cookies like this? And, and we could put them on our airplanes. And I go, I have no idea. I'm not a baker, but I'll go to the guy that did, and I'll probably have to put some shelf life in them because these are fresh, and you got to put them on your planes. And blah, blah. So I go to Eddie and uh, make an appointment. I asked him, I said, hey, uh, could I give you so many cents a cookie? 
if I sell these things to SkyWest or maybe um, uh, give you a percentage or something like that. And then he swore at me again. And he said, you're not a very blankety blank good businessman, are you? And I said, no. <laughs> he said, what you should do, he says, is, is sell me some stock in your company and I'll give you the recipe for free. Okay, that sounds better. So I sold him some stock in my company that day. He gave me the recipe, went, got a bakery to make the cookie. That cookie was on the airlines for about five years and was voted the number one snack of all times. And later on, that cookie was in Costco for 12 years. Wow. We sold millions and millions and millions of those cookies, all because he took the time to teach me how to say thank you. Wow. That's, you want to start a small business? Go find people that you can trust, that are willing to tell you when you're doing. Eddie um, uh, became an investor, and he would come to our uh, shareholder meetings, and he was often critical early on. And it got to the point where finally you go, you know, coach, I'm really proud of you. You're doing a good job. Coach, I'm really proud of you. You're doing a good job. But you need people like Eddie Sheldrake when you start something. You do, don't you? Mm -hmm. You don't need a bunch of yes men. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you need Augie to look at you and give it to you straight. Give it to you straight. Here's what you need to learn, son. <laughs> and you're not getting your hat until you do. <laughs> Another That's story. It. Yeah, right. Lynn, I'm glad you were a... Uh, not the best baseball player. so Boy, then that's you, a, And that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. and so the, you turned out to be one hell of a gymnastics coach, which decided to make some oats for breakfast and had a hell of a great little company going. Yeah, thank you. This has been a fantastic uh, podcast. Man. I am so thankful I finally got to meet and sit down with you and we got to do this. You have been everything and more Mel Frank said you would be. I actually had fun. I this was <laughs> I, I was nervous. I, it, it's fun going back, just like when you talk about Cal State Fullerton, going back and thinking about the the good times, right? Mm -hmm. And as, as hard as some of the those times were, same thing with the company. Those good times that produced a lot of fun. You know, Jenny's like she got two kids now. You know, that we get to go watch play baseball, right? And I got to see her get married, have children. She has a awesome job she does an awesome job so there's, there's been a lot of fun to this yeah it was fun for me today thanks well it's been my pleasure absolutely you're the best thank you so much lynn yeah good deal thank you for listening to the just a good conversation podcast with lynn rogers please click the like button if you enjoyed this episode become a subscriber to the show please leave a review if you enjoyed what you heard and remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram as well. And you can find all of the past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.